Good afternoon and welcome to the Movies Are Good podcast. I'm your host, Pie Man, and I'm a little bit tired right now, but I've had a fun weekend. No, I haven't. You know what? This is one episode where I'm going to say, movies aren't that good. (laughs) So often I come into this and I'm like, yeah, you know what? There was some good, there was some bad this week, but yeah, hell yeah. And to be fair, there's good this week and there's bad this week. There's just more bad than good. I gotta say, wow. It is a sad day when you have to say, I think I've got three, four, oh dear, I've got four out of the seven or eight movies I'm reviewing this week that I scored under 30 out of 100. That is not great for me. It is a bit of an empty week. Uh, the main big cinematic release came out this week was Renfield. We'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about Nicolas Cage playing Dracula. Oh, oh, it was beautiful. We will also be talking about, for some reason, I just, you know what, I... <laughs> Because there weren't a lot of cinematic releases this week, I kind of looked to check if there had been anything major I'd missed since the beginning of the year. And I had missed Magic Mike's Last Dance. Mostly because I'd never seen a Magic Mike film. So I decided this week I was going to go for it. Yeah, I was going to have a a time, a time, just a time, and go for it. And I sat down and watched all three Magic Mike movies. So we're going to talk about my experience doing that. Uh, We also had some streaming releases this week. We had uh, On a Wing and a Prayer, the surprisingly religious plane crash movie from Dennis Quaid. That was was a time. Um, We've got Netflix's Chupa, which is about a, a small boy who goes to Mexico and meets a tiny chupacabra and befriends it. It's like the Iron Giant if it sucked. Um... Um, we've got, I decided, because it was a bit of a light week, um, instead of just going for some random off-the-wall horror movie for an extra review this week, I was going to go for a random off-the-wall horror movie that stars Nicolas Cage and watched Willy's Wonderland. Oh my god, the tragedies I've seen this week. And then we always have our bad, our movies are bad entry in the week. (laughs) It wasn't actually the worst film I saw this week, but I did decide, in the wake of everything that's come out recently, to go back and watch the 1993 live-action Super Mario Bros. movie. So we're also going to talk about that, and I swear to God, if I make it through this episode without bashing my head off the desk, it will be a victory. So, first up, Renfield. I gotta say, I was looking forward to this from the very first time I saw a trailer for it. I thought it looked magnificently funny. I thought it was going to be one of the comedies of the year, unquestionably. I'm comfortable in saying it is my comedy of the year. I will say it narrowly beats out Cookie and Bear. Um, And I'll talk about why as I go. If you don't know, Renfield is about Renfield, who's been Dracula's little bitch boy for the last century or so. And Nicolas Cage is playing Dracula, so you can only imagine the just brilliant levels of memeage that this film reaches. Um, And he basically, Renfield decides he wants to get out of this toxic relationship he's in because Dracula's really not that nice to him. And um, it's a beautiful film. I mean, he goes through the same emotional journey as Wreck-It Ralph over the course of the film, deciding he doesn't really want to be a villain anymore, trying to find ways to get away from being a villain, even though he feels like he's been a villain his whole life. Even down to the emotional, like, literal support group that he's got. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, It is incredibly bloody, incredibly over-the-top with the action sequences. It's a full-on action comedy. It's not... It's not just a comedy. It's it's full-on action comedy the whole way through. It's got a lot of action scenes. They're all really funny. And the entire cast is amazing. It's got Nicolas Cage as Dracula. It's got 
Nicholas Holt as Renfield, who, oh, just this kind of role, a kind of sweet leading character who is in way over his head into something, is not at all a normal person, and just sticks out like a sore thumb from society while just trying to be a happy, nice, regular Joe. It's somehow exactly perfect for him. I feel like he's almost been typecast into that very specific set in three or four movies by now. He is wonderful at it. He's wonderful at that kind of role, and it, he made it so much fun. Uh, Aquafina, I never know how to pronounce her name. I love her in everything I've seen her in. She again kills it here. Even though her character, surprisingly, for, for her and the roles I've seen her play, it was as close to a serious characters the film gets <laughs> for sure and not that it gets that close but for sure she was the huh that everybody else kind of comedically played off of as much as there was a character like that it was just kind of all insane characters yeah and then ben schwartz ben schwartz was this kind of uh criminal that tried to befriend dracula as dracula got pushed away from Renfield, and he's also actually really great. I love Ben Schwartz. I love everything he does. And I didn't actually realize, I, I had it in my head that he was in something coming up that I knew about, but I forgot that it was this until I went into the cinema and saw him, and I was delighted to see how big a role he got, because I do think he's hilarious, and he did so well with it. Overall, it's, um, I think it's better than Cookie and Bear, and it's tough for me to say because Cookie and Bear was one giant beautiful meme and I loved it. But I think it's better because this film has some semblance of story. It's not just one big meme. Cookie and Bear, at the end of the day, let's face it, was just one big hilarious meme. This is a better actual movie, and... It's hard to say that I did actually get more enjoyment out of it because I was crying in the cinema during Cocaine Bear. But I was. I was, I was almost crying in the cinema during some of the comedy action sequences in this. Uh, the jokes are just really fun. It bounces off the, yeah, this is Dracula and he's fucking crazy narcissist um, thing a lot. But it, it, it does it so well. It is so much fun. I can't fathom that somebody actually got this made. <laughs> and the people working on it, I mean, Robert Kirkman, the guy that wrote the original Walking Dead stuff, he, he wrote this movie, and it's just, it feels like he started out trying to make like a really serious modern take on Dracula and vampires, and then halfway through gave up because it's just too funny. It's, it's just too funny and silly and wacky an idea when you try and put that in the modern world. Um, and it worked really well. I gotta say, I... I don't think I'd have any of those. <laughs> I'm a movie critic, so you should listen to me about my improvements to your film. Bullshit. I don't think I don't have a single thing really that I would have done differently with this. It is overly sentimental and sweet at times, which feels minorly out of place in such a silly, wacky comedy. But it kind of works at the same time. I I felt a little bit like. Mm, it's on the verge of overdoing it at times, but no, it does kind of work really well, and I really enjoyed it all. It's It's got such a fun build to it. It doesn't feel like it really loses the plot in the third act, um, which was impressive. It does just kind of have a magic Dracula's blood heals things, so we can fix any of our problems <laughs> at the end of the film. But it's no worse than at the end of a Scream movie when they go, oh yeah, by the way, this person who got stabbed eight times survived. Yay, move on. Uh, it's, it's just kind of, yeah, 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 let's get a happy ending out here. And that's fine. <laughs> because 
what else were you going to do in a wacky, silly, utterly insane comedy like this? It's not surprising that they would choose to do that. And it didn't bother me that much because it is such a just crazy film. It, it just it gets away with doing whatever it wants to, basically. Yeah, so I was fine with it. Um, and yeah, I think it's definitely my film of the week. It's very much worth seeing if you haven't. Uh, wow. <laughs> just if you love wacky comedies, if you love any comedy, uh, if you love Nicholas Holt, if you love Nicholas Cage, I gotta say, wow. I've had a refreshing between this and Willy's Wonderland, which I'll talk about later, on just how mental Nicholas Cage really is this week. And it's not like I forgot. It's just like sometimes, you know, the only thing I'd watched of Nicholas Cage recently was The Old Way, which is a Western he did. That I saw at the beginning of the year. And wow. Yeah that was just bad. And that was just like his more serious. Hmm, trying to do something different kind of thing. It's so much fun to just remember that Nicolas Cage. The majority of the time is just being an absolutely brilliant meme. And I love the man. For all of his insanity. And he really does. In interviews about this film. He talks about like. Yeah the real difficulties and challenges. He threw into playing Dracula. And how he'd love to do a proper Dracula film now. And I was like. I can't tell. I can't tell if he's a meme or if he's just taking himself so seriously that he becomes a meme. Like, he comes out the other side. Like, memes are just circular. And he's gone around the circle like eight times until you can't tell what's going on with him anymore. Mental. Is he a good or a bad actor? You never know. But anyway, Renfield, I gotta give it like an 81 out of 100. It's so goddamn good. It is awesome. Like, really incredible. And after a few weeks of kind of not the main blockbusters in the last few weeks, things like Mario and stuff, I, it, it, yeah, it's a nice reminder that sometimes the biggest movie in a week, the big cinema release, can just be freaking awesome. <laughs> I just had such a good time with it, and I was, I, there was no, there was no point. From first hearing that this movie was happening to seeing the trailers to the, uh, hearing the first reviews come out about what it was like to seeing the film. There was not a second anywhere in the build-up to seeing this or watching it where I thought I wasn't going to love it. It was just so much fun and it's a great movie. Yeah. So, next it's the Magic Mike franchise. <laughs> I'll put an asterisk next to that because... I'm not sure it really deserves to be called a franchise. It's just kind of three films that happen. And they're all completely different movies. It's it's baffling. Oh, it's baffling, yeah. No. Especially after having not done one for eight years. They came back to do Magic Mike's Last Dance. Like, that is astounding. But I'll kind of, I'll talk about them, okay? It's so weird to me, because you've got the first movie, okay? First Magic Mike movie is just male coyote ugly. I know it's based on, like, Channing Tatum's own experiences as an 18-year-old doing stripping in Florida or whatever. But it's just male coyote ugly, okay? The the crux of the film really is that Magic Mike's already there, Channing Tatum's already there at the club doing stripping, and he meets this guy on his second job at a building site, and lures him into the world of male stripping. And it's not a bad movie, okay? Uh, as an actual movie. I know that the charm of these films, everyone goes, yeah, well, the only thing that you get out of Magic Mike movies is sexy men taking their shirts off, 
that is almost entirely true. <laughs> almost entirely true. It The first one had more than that. The other two don't. <laughs> the first one is this story about, about being dragged into this kind of world and the, the drugs and the sex behind it and how that can... How, how, I mean, a lot of women shoving dollar bills into your thong can <laughs> can really give you uh, a, an overbearing sense of confidence and self-worth, which becomes dangerous at a certain point. There's, there's a lot of intriguing themes to it. There is. And a pretty good performance um, by Alex Pettifer. Who's Alex Pettifer, right? Yeah. Who, um, who is this young guy being led into this world. Good performance by Matthew McConaughey is this kind of, oh, you cannot trust him, sleazy old strip club owner. Yeah, yeah, no, he was good. The rest of the guys, you know, um, they're also there. And none of them, or Alex Pettifer, or Matthew McConaughey, ever really showed themselves to be, like, good at dancing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, the franchise really becomes a dancing by the third one and and how yeah it's not like it's not just strip male male strippers can dance yeah but looking back at the first one that feels real silly that the franchise has become about that because Channing Tatum's the only one in that first film that could really properly do like dancing while he did the stripping at all. So, um, yeah, that was interesting for me. They had, like, Kevin Nash, the wrestler, in it, and and that's fine. He, he was built well, still, anytime he was dancing, but he, uh, yeah, he had to retire from wrestling because he's got fucked up knees. Like, he can't dance, like, at all. Um, so, uh, yeah. It's it's a bit that's a bit of a weird aspect for me, because why couldn't they just get dancers, you know, or actors who can dance better? I know they probably wanted to show that the club's got like a range of different types of people and that can do different types of acts, but I, I don't know. It feels strange retrospectively because they made it so much about the dancing in the later films. So yeah, um, the first film though it was. You know, it happened. <laughs> I didn't think it was bad. I didn't mind the romantic angle um, between Mike and the new kid's sister. Uh, it, was, it wasn't much, but it was fine. The overall journey of the film is just a kind of meandering, you know, oh, the kid's getting worse as he goes deeper down the rabbit hole and become more dangerous and all of this, and uh, Mike can't really trust people, and yeah, is he going to leave, and all of this, it it doesn't really, it doesn't really get to the point very quickly, and then when it does get to the ending, it just kind of, whoop, happens, and is done, very quickly, so I was left at the end, ironically, a little unsatisfied, um, <laughs> I like watching men take off their shirts, but it just, this left me a little unsatisfied. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. It, it wasn't, it, it was okay. Yeah, the first one was okay. I'd give it like a 63 out of 100. It's just not, I don't know. 
it you know it, it feels like complaining about the plot of 50 shades of gray like there's no there's no actual point <laughs> complaining is there because that's not what anyone's going to actually go see that for but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a movie reviewer. It's in my nature, I guess. <laughs> and to be fair, yeah, like the writing behind this one, the the acting for the most part, it was totally acceptable. It was fine, and it also had these other appeals, if you will. So the appeal was the peeling off of their clothes. Yeah. So it was fine, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not gonna pretend it was like a work of art. <laughs> And then you get to the second film, and suddenly, like, you've lost Matthew McConaughey. You've lost the kid. And the whole franchise, like, it it, it kind of, in this one, is like, yeah, yeah, no, Mike. It's called Magic Mike. It, the franchise is about Magic Mike. The first film wasn't really about Magic Mike. <laughs> it wasn't about his journey. His journey is he he's a stripper. And then at the end, he goes, okay, maybe I won't any be anymore. So if the franchise is about Magic Mike, then his, as the lead, his emotional journey is, I'm a stripper, but I don't want to strip anymore, but yes, I do. So that's that's what happens. <laughs> and the films happen quick. You know, Magic Mike XXL, it happens fast here. He is working on his uh, custom furniture business. Yep. That sounds like something you tell people that you do when all you actually do is stripping. Um, <laughs> he's working on his custom furniture business, and he gets a call from his old stripping buddies, the ones who were really, really side characters that you didn't have to give shit about in the first movie because you only focused on Channing Tatum, Matthew McConaughey, and Alex Pettifer's characters. Well, guess what? In this one, they got rid of Matthew McConaughey and Alex Pettifer's characters, so Channing Tatum's character has to be the lead because he's the only character we know anything about that's left and then all these other side characters who really were not important we did not care about in the first film they're his bond group of bodies he he's separated from them but now he's come back to them he's come back to the fold and that's really important an emotional journey for us that we should care about <laughs> and we should care about their adventure going on one last ride to a stripper convention where they can show off their talents one last time before they have sad lives forevermore and there's no real um there's no real end goal to, for the rest of them like mike's just going to go back to his custom furniture business cool he's got his life set up cool the rest of them are going um to be sad <laughs> they're just going to be sad yeah they've they've all got these like things that they want to do right and they all incorporate these things into, like, the dancing performances that they put on at the convention once they get there. All part of their big show. And most of those performances fucking sucked. <laughs> they weren't sexy. They, they weren't impressive. The, the problem is that these guys, you know, at the end it was all like, yeah, it's going to be like a big thing. They, they dance and good. And to have more good dancing and more focus on dancing as an art in this movie they had to a go to a house where jitta pinkett smith's character uh, runs this weird establishment and have like actual talented people who i assume are just actual dancers do performances there while the magic mike characters just watch including donald glover 
who doesn't actually dance. He just makes up a little freestyle rap song to turn a lady on with his shirt off. To be fair, that was one of the sexier parts of the film. But yeah, no. Um, and then they go on to the convention, and once they get there, they basically try to hide the fact that most of them can't dance by... Well, one, having Mike and one of the actual dancers from Jada Pinkett Smith's place put on the biggest and by far longest performance. And and then by having the rest of them do these things that it's like, yeah, this is linked to what they want to do with the rest of their lives after this. But nobody cares. I never cared about any of these other characters. They don't matter to me. They're just kind of there. And the things they want to do just don't really fit. And it's just, oh. Those were all dumb, and the problem was that it gave each of them their own performance, and so that was like, I don't know, 15 minutes of the movie, just watching them each individually put on their own performances, which felt so dumb. Like, oh dear, this is dumb, what's happening now, yeah. And I mean, the problem is that before that, like the whole road trip... They didn't really, like, properly, like, find themselves or anything. There's some comedy to it They're, when they end up at these this house with all these middle-aged women and some of them have sex with some of them and talk to them, like, really sophisticated. And it's like, what, they're strippers? How do they know all this deep emotional stuff? What? How do, strippers shouldn't have emotion. What? I don't... Yeah. I think it was just trying to market itself to middle-aged women as much as other women. And I guess it probably worked. I don't know. I really don't know. How did these films do in general? Because <laughs> this film, it was not much of a film. No. It had Mike falling in love with another girl, kind of. Maybe falling in love. Just grinded on her a lot at the end. And therefore they're together now. It's not. It's never made clear. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of characters. A lot more than you need. There are a lot of just kind of scenes that just kind of happen. They're just kind of journeying and they crash and they try to turn on this random lady working at a supermarket. Like, yeah, there's just kind of random individual events and it almost forms a cohesive film, but not quite, like at all, um, unfortunately. So, yeah, it's just a bit, it's just a bit of an overall crazy mess. The second one, it is like a, 39 out of 100 it, it really it doesn't feel like they put much effort in trying to tie all that together or get us to really care about those other characters apart from Mike and their emotional journeys as they led towards these big final performances that were big huge life changing events for all of them supposedly that was just whoosh. his final dance Mike's was great but yeah it's um it's barely a film honestly <laughs> barely um, and then the third one, and I don't know what you could say about the third film. This is a new one, Magic Mike's Last Dance. Well, they just, again, it starts just quick, you know? The second one, Mike was like, I've got this furniture business. My buddies have called me up. I'm off, <laughs> and and I am immediately off to an adventure with them. I do not care, and he was really, like, swamped under and stuff. It was weird. It was bizarre. It just dropped everything. This one, it just kind of, everything Mike cared about in the first two films, all of all of his journey was about this custom furniture business. 
This thing is hugely important to him. This is all he's got. This is his whole thing. And it just kind of explains that away by being like, COVID. <laughs> like, it's got it's got this girl, Salma Hayek's daughter in it, just narrating things throughout the film to just explain things. And the golden rule of screenwriting is show, don't just say, don't just tell the audience what happens. You know, the, the dumbest moment in possibly screenwriting history was... Somehow, Palpatine returned. <laughs> and, and, and they just say that in the opening crawl. They're like, Palpatine's back. Ah, nuts. That's it. Yeah. So, um, mental. Honestly, just, just mental. Uh, <laughs> whole thing. But after that, they just kind of go, right, so he's per now. He's just a bartender now. That's it. And and what's going to happen? Well, he's 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 gonna meet this woman. And he meets Salma Hayek in the opening like two minutes. <laughs> he's lost everything in his life that we cared about. The character that we know is gone. He's just this forty year old sad man who knows how to strip now. How is this related to the other films? Well the, all of the other characters will be in a Zoom call with him at one stage. And it actually looks like they just got all the actors from their homes onto a Zoom call. With Shannon Tatum, we're like, ha-ha. And they kind of had them vaguely reprise the roles while they were just kind of sitting around being like, huh? And then they put that in a Hollywood film. It was bizarre. Um, and it was clearly just done to be like, yeah, we didn't completely forget about the, all the other characters that you've ever met in this franchise. But they did. Uh, <laughs> they totally did. They could have had more of them like sent out there to London with him to train all these other people or whatever. But they didn't. You know why? Because none of them could ever dance. So why would they be like dancing instructors? Whoops. And this is this is what I mean. Like this franchise at this point has become entirely about dancing and Mike's ability to dance and to teach dancing. And it just, it feels insane from where we started to be here in the space of three films. But yeah, this woman, Salma Hayek, has got this theater in a divorce from her husband and she wants to put on a show which they've been putting on for ages, but she wants to make it not that show at all anymore because she wants to make it about stripping. So after getting a dance from Mike, she brings him to London and puts him in charge of a huge important thing, gives him a job because he made sexy love to her. And the whole premise, the whole point of the film is that she really feels this for him now and hopes that he feels it for her too. That's the equivalent of the beast locking Belle in his tower and being like, why doesn't she love me? Her complaint through the whole film is, why can't he see? And everyone else around her is like, oh, that boy, he's going to wake up at some point and realize what he's got with you. And it's like, well, you, you said you didn't want to have sex with him when you get to London. And then you keep like turning up in his bedroom at night. And, and you keep saying, no, we can't do this. We're working together. And... Yeah, God. <laughs> this film was written for women. God, I swear. Um, and look, overall, I do think that the second one, or the third one, is better than the second one. Because, whoa, <laughs> the second one was mastacular. <laughs> but, again, the end is like half an hour-ish where they're performing the play and you're just meant to watch and enjoy all of the sexy things that are going on. 
And some of the dances, like Magic Mike's big final dance, really good, really well done, really awesome. Oh, he's like sliding around in the rain on the stage with this girl performer that he's dancing with. Really great dance. You know, just on its own. Everything else, and the kind of framing device of this woman who's meant to be playing the lead role in the play, just kind of, after the opening scene, she just talks and is like, yeah, this is what women want, and this is what we should have. Look at these sexy men. And that's just happening, and then we're watching these, like, dances for, like, 20 minutes, like, so long before Mike gets on. There's nothing else going on, and it just feels nuts. And that is the same as the end of the second one. And in both cases, it's just the third act. It's a mess. If it was Shannon Tatum doing a 30-minute dance, maybe, because he actually puts effort in and is good. In this one, the dancing and stuff was better. In the rest of the performance, I just didn't care that much about what was happening. Wasn't you know? There's there's no investment in that as an audience member. That's just that's just the sexy times. It's just like yeah, we did some plot stuff, kind of no sexy times. And the romance story is the main focus this time. It was a major side plot in the first one. It was a pretty minor side plot in the second one, which became major only at the very end. And in this one, it is the main story. It's the whole thing. It's just Mike is forty. This woman is divorced. Will they get together? Yes, because it's focusing entirely on getting middle-aged women to like this film now, and they want to believe that that could be them. <laughs> and, I mean, come on, you know, it's it's just a bit of fun. The whole Magic Mike franchise is just a bit of silly fun, but it's just baffling to me that after eight years, they just came back and went, yeah, let's do another one to really wrap up this franchise when nobody, nobody needed this franchise to be wrapped up story-wise. And indeed, everything about the story you've ever known has been completely thrown out at the beginning of this one. And then they just kind of do a different thing. Magic Mike is the only movie character that got as thoroughly demolished by the pandemic as the rest of humanity. So I guess that's relatable. But overall, I'm giving Magic Mike's Last Dance like 47 out of 100. Way better than the second. Way worse than the first. Yeah. It could be worse. And now we get to move on to some of the other new films that actually came out this week. Unfortunately, because they're all so bad. Um, <laughs> some of those Magic Mike movies are... Some of the better ones we're talking about this week. On a Wing and a Prayer. Oh, On a Wing and a Prayer. Okay. This is a movie that came out on Amazon Prime this past week. It stars Dennis Quaid. It's a true story movie about a guy who was on a private charter flight with his wife, two daughters, and the captain, who he knew as a friend. And the captain had a stroke. This happened like two days after the guy's brother's funeral, who also had a stroke and died. As did his uncle and his dad. And yeah. And at one point he says, like after his brother dies of a stroke, he says to his wife, how can a God that's kind and benevolent do this? If there's really a God up there, how could he do this? How could he take all of them in the same way like that? And, you know... The first 10 minutes is about him and his brother and their barbecuing hobby. <laughs> so if your hobby, if your main hobby focus is eating red meat, you might want to just reconsider 
calling down the wrath of a vengeful god over killing a lot of members of your family through heart failure. Um, <laughs> so it's, yeah, that's that's a thing. That's a thing. But typical red-blooded American style, huh? And this is this is make no mistake. The opening, you know, 10, 15 minutes, it was a bit like, okay, this feels a bit stilted. This feels a bit weird. doesn't feel like some of the actors are that great. But the whole barbecue thing, introducing his family, it was all fine. Heather Graham plays his wife. I haven't seen her in anything in a while. Um, yeah, that was all okay. And then right after his brother dies, it, do- it doesn't happen until right after his brother dies, but right after his brother dies, during that whole speech about calling down the wrath of vengeful God, he and his wife have like a five-minute conversation about God and how much they've always loved God and will always love God and how God is so great. And and he keeps asking all these questions and his wife just keeps going, God has a plan, believe in that. And she says that a lot. She says some variation of that line a lot of times in the one scene. And, um, whoa. No, I'm not religious, so I'm not going to, you know, comment on much about this, but it is supremely preachy. Oh my goodness, is it supremely preachy. Like, wow. Like, really didn't expect that from a Dennis Quaid movie. Like, if it was an unknown middle-aged leading actor, I might have been like, oh, right, okay. But no, I was shocked at the level to which this was about God and God safely bringing down this plane against all the odds, even though this guy had taken flying lessons before. Um, so it's, it's a little, yeah. Um, and yeah, basically what happens is they're coming home from his brother's funeral. They, some for some reason, booked a private charter flight for an Easter Sunday to get back home. It's just the five of them up there, the four family members and the captain. The captain has a stroke. He goes, my brother just died. That's not funny. Oh, you're actually having a stroke. And then he has to fly the plane. And it's a, it's a small plane, but... It's way different to the other small planes he's flown before. But he has flown other small planes before recently. It doesn't matter. And uh, basically, everyone on the ground's going, God, this is going to take a miracle. And they really try and build it like a Roland Emmerich film. That is noticeable. They want this to be the day after tomorrow. That's why they got Dennis Quaid. But it's been 20 years, and... Yeah, his acting doesn't feel like it's right quite up on the level anymore. No, not really. It was not very good. Um, in fact, it was quite terrible. Yeah, not really, really, like, the worst thing ever. I have to admit that. Despite all the preachiness, I can't say it's the worst disaster movie I've seen, but it's a fair disaster of a disaster movie. The acting was pretty cringy at times. Like, at times, it was desperate. Um, they have these little kids on the ground who kind of get involved. They don't. You think they're going to get on the radio with them somehow or something? No, they're just listening on the radio. And then they go to the airport to see them try to land. But they use these little kids as a framing device to explain in layman terms some of the flight lingo going on. Um, And there's just these other random characters that you meet and don't really understand why they're involved in the plot for a long time. So it's really a muddled first half in general. And then once they kind of all link up and get together kind of and start trying to get the plane to land safely it there's a period where it's better not not really good but it's not really terrible there's less preachiness in the kind of second early third act there's a little bit more 
almost, they, they are going for Roland Emmerich style, and there's a little bit more to it like that. But Roland Emmerich style, it's big skill disaster. So it doesn't really work for a small plane going down that worst of times is going to kill this family of four. It's not a big scale disaster. It's about as small scale as a disaster film could be, and it tries to treat it like a big one. And I think that was one of its major mistakes. And obviously when they actually try to start landing, it's all, God will do this for us. God will get us done. God will do this. Okay, no, mate, you, you the guy who took the flying lessons, are going to be the one that gets you done. It doesn't matter. It was a little bit <laughs> with the preachiness, and it was just bad, apart from that real bad. Um, I kind of thought it would be like, you know, eh, like a, like a high two star, maybe low three star movie. It's like, I'm going to give it like a 21 out of 100. It was pretty rough. It was bordering on one star. Um, I think it was actually my worst movie of the week and I watched the live action 1993 Mario movie this week, which we will get to. Um, before that though, we're going to talk about Chupa, new Netflix movie. Uh oh, <laughs> you know. Netflix is, is going to go down. I, 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 it's an early prediction because I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But in, in a few years, I think Netflix is going to go down. And that will be another step towards Disney becoming all-consuming. Because Disney Plus at that point will probably become the biggest streaming platform in the world. Dangerous, for sure. But Netflix movies. Not the Disney Plus movies... A lot of them are that much better. Sure, they've got like, you know, in a couple of weeks, like the live action, big budget Peter Pan and Wendy film coming out. Okay, those ones, at least they feel big budget. And Netflix has some big budget ones too. But, oh, the ones that aren't, the ones that aren't the big budget main focuses for both of these platforms. Oh, dear, the desperateness. Oh, dear, it's so terrible. And Chupa is one of those. It's about this kid who lives in America, and it's in the 90s, it's said, and he gets made fun of because he's not white. <laughs> uh, what a fresh new take on racism. Um, so yeah, that's happening. And then he goes for a holiday to visit his granddad in Mexico with his cousins. And the three kid actors... They are bad. <laughs> they are just not very good at acting. And the CGI monstrosity that is this baby chupacabra that they find is at times almost cute, but for the most part just awkward looking. Because it's so bad, the CGI. Rough, yeah. So the story about the chupacabra is there's a chupacabra. Oh, it's not a good movie. The story is that there's a chupacabra and it runs away and leaves its baby behind so that the baby won't get captured by these guys, by Christian Slater, who's the bad guy, who's the inevitable white American bad guy scientist type person who wants to capture it to use its blood for medical things. And you gotta, yeah. You gotta see it to believe just how bog standard it is for this kind of movie, for an E.T. It's an E.T. or an Iron Giant or a, yeah, any of those. It's just one of those. It's a pretty bad one of those. That could have been a pretty okay one of those if it had 
any budget. <laughs> the CGI needed some work. <laughs> and uh, the... Ooh, the actors, yeah. Almost all of them needed to be better. They got Christian Slater, and he was okay. <laughs> he was pretty over the top, but it was mostly a kiddie-focused film, so fair enough. It just didn't have much to it. It really didn't. And it didn't even have that much focus on the Chupacabra. The kid does not meet the Chupacabra for, I, I want to say, about halfway through the film. Before that happens. It's not a very long film, but even so, that was weird. Um, and then when he does meet him, it's just like, right. So the the granddad's got the chupacabra in the barn. The baby chupacabra. And we're going to do a few scenes. We're going to do one where he, he meets it. The kid meets the chupacabra. And then the next scene with it, he is trying to hide it from his cousins. And they both immediately see it. And learn about its existence. And the granda comes in during that scene, reveals that he's been hiding it here on purpose, and that they're going to protect it from the bad man. And, and yeah. <laughs> from there, it basically moves into the third act, where Christian Slater comes and steals it. And they have to go after him. And the whole time there's this little minor subplot about the granddad and his looming dementia, which was... Sad, but not really played off as sad. More as like a, hey, dementia, he forgets things, comedy? Let's dress him up as a wrestler like he used to be and convince him in his adult dementia attack state to go after Christian Slater and save Chupa. We're not going to talk about how uninventive it is that they named the Chupacabra Chupa. Yeah. <laughs> this was bad. You know, it was... Uh, oh, it was just bad. It, it wasn't, again, like the last one, it wasn't a, a real horrific time one-star movie, but it was, it was like a low two-star movie. It was definitely not worth the time I put into it. Not worth it for anyone besides, like, a kid who might enjoy it, but... I think there's better things for kids to watch too. Uh, it, it'd be a bit of an insult to the intelligence of most children to make them watch this one, I think. It was just sad. Because it was, literally. There's all this stuff about the kid getting bullied and the Chupacabra and its mother getting separated. And then the kid comes out there and meets the granddad and the cousins. And they're just kind of chilling and doing stuff and talking about old school luchador wrestling for... A long time. <laughs> and then they kind of have a bit of a focus on that even after they've met Chupa. Like, I think the scene after they all talk about it and they're like, yeah, this is our plan. We're going to save him. I think the scene after that, they're just watching wrestling again on the TV without Chupa. And it's like, right. <laughs> I expected at least after he was introduced, the focus was going to kind of move to it. It being the title of the film. But no, not really. Not until they have to get into the third act where they have to rescue Chupa. It's just kind of sitting there in the barn in the meantime. And nothing happens with it. So, insane. And I'm giving Chupa like 27 out of 100. Bad. Bad time. Yeah, gotta say. Willy's Wonderland is next. <laughs> 
Willy's Wonderland is a movie where Nicolas Cage, his car breaks down. He is a silent protagonist. He does not say nothing. He breathes heavily, chugs a lot of soda, but he does not say anything. His car breaks down, and the mechanic in the town tells him, Hey, you can work off your debt to me, because we don't accept credit cards, by working for the night, cleaning this old broken-down arcade place. Willy's Wonderland is a Five Nights at Freddy's ripoff, but the security guard goes in there, Nicholas Cage's character goes in there, and starts just... Brutally murdering any of the animatronics that come to life. Like, viciously. He, he beats the absolute living fuck out of them. And I'm... It is one of the better terrible films I've seen recently. It was definitely for a bad movie, because it was a bad movie. Make no mistake, it was a bad movie. It was awesome. <laughs> he is completely silent. There's this group of teenagers that break in to try and get him out so that they can set the building on fire because they already poured gas all over it. But the rest of the people in the town are trying to keep him in and let Willie, the mean animatronic, eat him. And, yeah, they give sacrifices to these animatronics so that they won't come outside and kill everyone else. I don't know why that works, because wouldn't they just be like, well, we could eat some people that you bring us, or we could get more by just going outside. Because there's nothing stopping them going outside, they just choose not to. They just sit here and wait for the town people to eventually bring them another sacrifice. It feels weird, it feels baffling for bloodthirsty demonic things. If they were trapped on the grounds, that, that'd be one thing. But they're not. So, yeah, it's confusing. And it's not good. And the plot is mostly, he is cleaning this place. He's quirky because every time he gets, like, a break, he'll just stop, even if he's in the middle of fighting one of these things, and just go and have a break. And he, he likes to play pinball on his breaks and drink, like, just chug sodas. Yeah, it's not much of a horror movie. It is more of a comedy than anything else after having watched it. And it's just another super meme very unusual Nicolas Cage performance. He just loves putting on weird performances, even if it's in really bad movies. He does not seem to care whether it is a Renfield that's actually genuinely really funny and well put together, or a this, where it's insane, really funny. Funny at times. Really dumb and boring at other times. No, nah, not too... It's never too boring. Mostly because it's quite short. And it's... It, it really doesn't mess around too much. He is in there after... Sort of 15, 20 minutes. And then things start happening. Pretty quickly. There's like eight animatronics. And he just has like individual kind of fight scenes with all of them. The teenagers come in and get picked off. That's the insane... That's the most insane part of the whole thing, is the teenagers come in, the group of them, and they're all there with him, and they, they know, because they're so terrified of this whole place, and they know what's going on, they know these things are real, and are there to kill them, and will kill them if they stick around, and yet they get in there, and after seeing him kill one of them, they're like, oh, and just go 
spread out around the place and get picked off. And two of them stop to have sex in one of the rooms and obviously get murdered. It's just... <laughs> the movie's just like... Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it has about the intelligence level of... Like, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Yeah. And it's doing it in a meme way, but that doesn't change the fact that it is bad. It's it's unmistakably a bad movie. Really, really stupid, crazy bad. It's just also really funny to watch. And I would definitely watch it again. Does that make sense? There's some movies where it's like, this is meme and stupid, but it's pretty good. This is meme and stupid, but it is definitely very quite bad. <laughs> very quite bad. Not the worst film by any means that I saw this week, but I'll give it like a 38 out of 100. Highly worth watching if you love bad movies, because you will definitely love this. I love bad movies, so I love this. If I didn't like bad movies, I would not like this. That make sense? Good. So, movies are bad. We've learned that this week, but we're going to talk about one more not, interestingly enough, the worst movie I saw this week. Which is kind of crazy. Because it was bad. The Super Mario Brothers movie from 1993. The first attempt, and the only, hopefully ever, live-action attempt at Mario. Ooh, yeah. So, as we all know from having played all those Mario games... Mario and Luigi live in Brooklyn. One of them is Hispanic, and they have an age difference which is quite massive, and they get drawn into the highly advanced humanoid Cooper realm, where maybe Bowser lives as King Koopa as a businessman because all of the Koopas evolved from dinosaurs? It's unclear. The same way that humans in the human realm evolved from apes. This film feels weirdly preachy in that it's making fun of evolution a lot. Not important. And as we all know from the Mario games that we played as kids, then, once they make it to the realm of human people whose society is pretty much just like the same in the human world, they have to help Princess Daisy save her father who has been turned into a fungus that's spread throughout the kingdom. Before Bowser, I mean King Koopa, can break into the human realm and merge their realms using a rock. And as we all know <laughs> from the Mario games, <laughs> Yoshi is, is just a little tiny dinosaur. Toad is a homeless guy that plays music. Um... Were there any other characters from... Ah, uh, hmm, no, 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 not really. No Peach, no Clear Bowser. Um, not, not much by way of, of any other 
characters that you'd really recognize. They had little babombs. They did have Goombas. Live action, horrifying Goombas. And that's the plot, is there's this rock that Daisy wears. She's also from the human realm, but is actually from this realm. It doesn't matter. And she has this rock that bows well, that the president, Koopa, whatever, needs to merge the realms together. And I don't know why, with his very small f army, he thinks that would be a good thing and he would be able to take over the human realm. There is no evidence of that. But anyway, Mario and Luigi, the big heroes, they get drawn into this world. They lose the rock to Big Bertha, everyone's favorite Mario character. And, um, <laughs> and then they get lost in the desert for a while. They join forces with King Koopa's cousins, who betray him really quickly. And, um, and then they go back to... They have to dance at a nightclub. Mario has to do a very weirdly seductive dance on Big Bertha to get the rock back. And then she helps them, despite him betraying her and stealing the rock, get away from Koopa's man, and then they lose the rock again, and Koopa's woman, who's also not a Mario character, almost uh, merges the realms before Luigi stops her. Mario doesn't, doesn't do that much in the finale, no. So that's the cliff notes. Um, it was, oh my god. <laughs> it was, oh my goodness, gracious me. And I'd give the Super Mario Bros. movie like 23. Yeah, 23 out of 100. It, it, it does have its moments where it just as a kind of weird comedic action film, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not funny. It's not good. And it's highly, horribly offensive to anyone who actually likes Mario games. I, wow. <laughs> Just wow. It had its moments where you thought, okay, if they were really confused, had never played a Mario game, got the Cliff Notes version, and then tried to write a live-action version, I could see how they could arrive at this conclusion. But most of the time, no. Just no. Just big fucking fat Jesus Christ, no. <laughs> anyway. Oh, every week we have something that we like to talk about. And I'll just talk about it quickly here, this one. It, was, it just came into my head this week, and I had nothing else. And I was like, you know what? Rayman Legends. <laughs> Why? Partly because I've been thinking about the Mario games lately, and I was like, God, there's some great Mario games out there, but I'm not going to talk about one of them. Why? Because in the last, I don't know, for, in the last like 10, 12 years, the number one platformer that I have played, basically, for me, is Rayman Legends. It is an awesome game. I am confused. I want to talk about this because I. it is so great. It's got such great co-op. It is the best split-screen game I've seen come out in ever. Um, and it's so much fun. It's got a lot of levels to it. It's got a lot of replayability. It's gorgeously put together. And, and personally, I just love 2D for platformers. So it just worked really well for me. And it just never got a sequel. They With Rayman, they're so weirdly inconsistent. They did Rayman Origins and Legends. And both games are hugely well-acclaimed amazing games and then they just stopped and they haven't made one a new Rayman game at all in 10 years now and I'm just like huh at that because I would give that like an 87 out of 100 I loved that game to pieces it is so good I'd say the first Ori game is the only thing that could challenge it for me for a platform that's come out in the last 10 years because I, I just loved it so much and I don't it's just putting it out there for any gaming fans you should definitely give it a look it is awesome 
And that's us for the week, folks. It was not a good week of cinema. No. We, no. But next week is going to be oh, busy. Busy as hell, actually. Evil Dead Rise is the big, big release. That's going to be big. And I'm going to do a whole section next week talking about the whole Evil Dead franchise, which is an intriguing one that I have I, I've, I know very well. Um, I think I started watching the Evil Dead movies before I really should have been allowed to, probably. Also coming out, we've got How to Blow Up a Pipeline I'll hopefully get to see. That should be interesting. Um, Assassin Club we might be talking about. Uh, Searching and Missing. Missing is coming out here in the UK, and it's a it's a film that's a kind of a follow-up to Searching, kind of a spiritual successor. They're both movies just set through the lens of, like, cameras and phones and things. Uh, it's all shown through devices and, uh, as a, a journey happens for some people. A, a very unusual style to it. The trailer for Missing looks interesting, so we're going to watch both of those as well. Um, and Ghosted, big Apple TV release, Anadarmus, Chris Evans, action comedy, don't look in any of the trailers or anything like they've got any chemistry, even though they started movies before together, but it should be interesting. I kind of hope that that works out well. I got hopes, you know, Evil Dead Rise, I'm hoping that oh, could be one of the big horror films of the year. That one in particular looks great. I am hoping, gonna put, I'm going to be bold, I'm going to hope that's a five-star movie. Uh, Ghosted, I'm hoping four stars. Could easily be like a two. We'll see. Uh, how to blow up a pipeline? I don't have much expectation for it. Probably a three star, really. Searching and missing. I'm gonna think in low four stars. Hopefully for missing. We'll see. And our movies are bad. Entry for next week. It's the Beaster Bunny, also known as Beaster Day. Here comes Peter Cotton Hell. So I'm gonna watch that. <laughs> A lot of horror, a lot of weird stuff, a lot of, lot of franchise, just a lot of films to go through next week for sure. Oh, and Assassin Club, if I get to that as well. It's quite a full-looking week already. Um, I'm hoping for a low four-star, probably a three-star, really. Doesn't look phenomenal or anything. But that's all for this week, guys. I hope you enjoyed, as always. The movies are big. Movies are big. <laughs> because they're not good. They're not good right now, but the Movies Are Good podcast is here every week, and I love doing this. So share it around, follow, subscribe, wherever you're watching, and I will see you again next time.